Okay, folks, it's Healthcare Unfiltered. It is Tuesday. It is the Healthcare Unfiltered episode you all have been waiting for, the ABIM and the MOC. Over the past couple of weeks, Dr. Aaron Goodman from UCSD started a petition to end the MOC, uh, which stands for Maintenance of Certification. Basically, it's a process that physicians who are certified in internal medicine or any of its specialties need to follow in order to maintain their certification. This certification is needed for physicians to practice medicine within their specialty at their hospitals or any healthcare system that employs them. It's also important for them to get reimbursed by payers for the services that they provide. This petition clearly struck a nerve because it gathered over 10,000 signatures within a couple of weeks. And in response to that, Dr. Richard Barron, the president and the CEO of the ABIM, which is the agency that provides these certificates, responded. And they actually reached out and they offered that they are more than happy to come on the show to address any questions and to explain the process and why the MOC and why the recertification, the time-limited certifications actually exist. I'm very thankful to Dr. Richard Barron for agreeing to come on the show. Let's face it, frankly, he did not need to do this, but he generously agreed and he wanted to address these questions. I commend him for doing this and for uh, willing to respond to difficult questions and to be responsive to a petition that clearly gathered thousands and thousands of these signatures. So thank you, Dr. Barron, for coming on the show and thank you for uh, being here and for agreeing to address all of the questions that your constituents have. I very much appreciate this and very thankful for that. And thank you also, Dr. Goodman, for bringing up a topic that is clearly very important to many of the physicians. If it wasn't really that important, if it wasn't that sensitive, it wasn't really top of mind, you wouldn't actually get over 10,000 signatures within two weeks. So clearly the topic is critical, clearly the topic is important, and I really want to thank in advance both of my guests for coming on the show and for chatting with me about something that many of my listeners and viewers would want to know about. So thank you. This is a very special and exclusive episode on Healthcare Unfiltered on a topic that is really important and with two uh, guests that are the proper guests for this, the physician that started the petition and the head of the organization that the petition is actually addressing. Before I air the episode that I taped with these two guests on the ABIM and the maintenance certification, I ask you to please subscribe to Healthcare Unfiltered and you can find it on all podcast episode on all podcast outlets. You can also watch all of these podcasts on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And don't forget to let me know what you think about the podcast by direct messaging me on Twitter or by email at shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. Check out my website, shadinabhan.com. And also, while you're at it, hey, and you want to read, check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Without further ado, the podcast episode you all have been waiting for, the ABIM and the MOC, with Drs. Barron and Goodman.
I want to first start by thanking both of you for coming on this podcast. I know that everyone is is busy, and I think there has been a lot of attention pertaining to the ABIM board certification, mock, all of these things. We're going to get into it. And uh, I want to thank both of you for agreeing to come on Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, and with that, we're going to start just with quick introductions. And uh, Rich, we'll start by you, maybe just a little bit about you and 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 who you are, and and maybe briefly how uh, how did you uh, end up at the ABI at the ABIM? Great. Well, my career, uh, thirty years in community practice of internal medicine and geriatrics in the community in which I live. The first three years in rural Tennessee, it was a high stakes practice, caring for neighbors, my kids, teachers, my wife's colleagues. I had a shadow career in Medicaid managed care leadership beginning actually in the 1980s, which was a part-time job to support me while I was opening my private community practice. And I actually voluntarily recertified in uh, internal medicine and geriatrics in 98 because I was concerned I didn't know what I needed to know to take care of my patients when I was focusing on learning some other things. I left practice to lead efforts at the Innovation Center at CMS. Uh, to redesign primary care payment and delivery and to oversee development of new ACO models. And I took on the CEO position at ABM just over a decade ago. I, I had been named to the board as a director in 2001 uh, and was chair in, uh, I think it was 2008-9 or 2007-8. Aaron, uh, a little bit about you and what you do day in and day out when, you, when you're not tweeting. Yeah, um, well, I, I, I'm a pretty busy clinician, so uh, I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, I'm in the Division of Blood and Marrow Transplantation. Um, um, I'm quite busy clinically, usually two to three days of a clinic taking care of patients with hematologic malignancies, uh, bone marrow transplantation, cellular therapies, and then I round on the inpatient transplant cell, uh, cell therapy service about 10 to 12 weeks a year. I uh, run the BMT uh, third year fellowship at UCSD, which I started and I'm very proud of to try to save physicians additional time spent training. So it's built into the traditional hemoc training. And um, I'm uh, proudly boarded in internal medicine, hematology, uh, and oncology. Wow. So, uh, Rich, let, let's start. I just want to make sure that listeners and, and folks who are maybe not physicians who are listening, I do have a quite a large audience who may not be really uh, doctors. Um, I want to level set some definitions. Um, um, what what does it take to be uh, board certified in internal medicine? What does that actually mean? And what is MOC? What is LKA? What is uh, certification every 10 years, recertification? Can you just help us understand these terminologies and uh, and that probably will help also, Aaron, as we start the discussion. Sure, that, that's a great place to start. Uh, ABIM was created in 1936 uh, by a joint action of the American College of Physicians and the American Medical Association. And the basic idea was uh, to issue certification in internal medicine, which meant there'd be an independent third party uh, validating that somebody had a set of expertise. And there were two components to it. There was expected training, and that's overseen by ACGME. And then there was an exam when people finished training, and that was the ABIM board exam. Um, we initially issued lifetime certification. People had certificates issued at the beginning. We actually call people who hold them diplomates. So that gives you an idea of what the construct was. 
Uh, but in the 1980s, when family medicine was first created in 1967, they rec- or 69, they recognized that uh, lifetime certification was not a great idea because knowledge changes very rapidly in our field. Uh, patient care is very high stakes. And the idea that there should be a time limit to the certificate when it was renewed uh, rather than being issued for life. And in 1990, ABIM started issuing time-limited certification, and um, and I think we we didn't do a great job explaining why, uh, and we frankly because we thought that everybody understood that staying current in the field was hard work. Not everybody did it, and that just as certification would add value at the beginning of career, over the course of career, uh, an independent validation that you've stayed current was something that would be important. Um, we. We initially did that only with a once every 10 year exam with people paying a lump sum once every 10 years when they took the exam. Uh, The board didn't regard that as uh, very continuous learning and tried to move toward a more continuous program. And uh, the program has multiple components. It has an educational component. It used to have a quality improvement component. Uh, shortly after I started, we heard a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, unhappiness about that. And frankly, we agreed with it. We realized that the program wasn't achieving what we hoped it would achieve. And we suspended it uh, and, and said we were not going to require it as part of certification. Most recently, we have launched an assessment that we call the Longitudinal Knowledge Assessment, or the LKA. And that's meant to be instead of a once every 10 years exam that you take in a secure Pearson View testing center. It's something people could do at home. They get 30 questions a quarter. Um, It is taking people an average of about two minutes a question. So it's about an hour um, a quarter. And people, when they take a question, immediately get the answer to the question and the rationale and some references. And so it is educational. But over the five years that people engage in the LKA, there's accumulating score, and we now produce score reports that give people a sense of how they're performing compared to colleagues and how they're performing compared to a passing standard. So the idea is it is both um, an educational and an assessment tool. You can't lose certification in the LKA as long as you're performing successfully in the LKA. Uh, you can stay there and keep doing it. Uh, but if you don't perform successfully in the LKA, then you will need to take the point in time long form exam under secure conditions to demonstrate. And that's So it's almost like we have a maintenance of certification paradigm with the LKA and a recertification paradigm with the point in time exam. Aaron, uh, do you have any questions to that? And I want to specifically use Aaron as an example. I mean, I'm triple boarded as well, but let's say Aaron is boarded in internal medicine, hematology, and medical oncology. What does it take Aaron Goodman to maintain these three board certification? What does he need to do? Well, the first I'll tell you is that you and Aaron are, um, I think there are maybe 6% of our diplomates who hold three certificates. Um, most of our diplomates hold one uh, and then a bunch hold two. And and the way we think about it is, uh, you know, people should maintain the certificates that are appropriate to the practice that they do. So if Aaron's attending on an internal medicine service, um, I, I think everyone would hope and want and expect that he would maintain his knowledge in internal medicine. If all he's doing is bone marrow transplantation um, and attending on a general hematology service, 
then it might be more appropriate not to maintain the internal medicine certificate and to maintain a hematology certificate and perhaps an oncology certificate. Dr. Barron, I, I don't know if you, bone marrow transplant, um, we're an inpatient primary service. Um, and I would say most of what I do is internal medicine on a day-to-day -day basis, us transplanters. We're managing their diabetes, hypertension. We have such a unique set of patients where consultants are helpful, but we really act as the primary service, which we take great pride on. So um, we're, we're, we're quite... Um, need of our internal medicine skills and, and do stay up to date on it. That's great to hear. Uh, and and I think, you know, specialty practice. I'm glad to think you don't think we need it. That would mean. You know. No, I, uh, what I was saying is that specialty yeah. practice really varies. Different people have different sets of skills called upon, uh, you know, across the different disciplines, people aren't required to maintain underlying certification, but they choose uh, differently. So in some of the procedural disciplines, people don't maintain it. In some of the cognitive disciplines, more people do. So it's one of those things that it just depends on your practice setting, but I'm thrilled to learn that you're using and maintaining internal medicine skills in a bone marrow transplant setting. Rich, I want to go back to this 1990 thing. I'm, I'm a little bit confused about this. Um, I mean, suddenly, so in 1990, you guys unilaterally decided. I mean, it was a unilateral decision. It wasn't like something that was voted on or anything like that. The ABIM decided we need to have a time limit to the certificate. I, I don't believe, I researched this a lot in preparation, and I don't believe uh, the, your constituents had really a say in the matter. Um, my question is, so I don't get if the idea is really to maintain the knowledge so we don't care if you were born in 1989 that you maintain the knowledge. So in 1989, you are certified for life, but in 1990, you're not. To me, it seems very arbitrary, even as, again, I'm trying to be neutral here, but it's very, very arbitrary. And frankly, the people who are have older certificates, if you ask me, they are the ones who require more. So this grandfather rule is rather strange and I, I and i think i've gotten so many requests trying to understand what happened in 1990 that suddenly the 1989 folks are so well positioned that they need nothing but the 1990 plus folks they require lots of exams yeah i i can't defend that decision Chadi. uh i i don't think it was the right call i think it was a political decision at the time to say okay we're going to uh I, I, again as i said in the environment, a lot was changing. Every new board created after 1960, emergency, uh, 1967, emergency medicine, family medicine, those boards all never had lifetime certification. They only had time limit certification. And I think the board made a political judgment in 1990 and felt like, well, when we issued the certificate to these folks, we didn't tell them it was gonna be time limited. We can't retroactively go back and tell them it's time limited now. So there was some sense of trying to keep a promise. But I think you're exactly right. One of the reasons why it became difficult to explain the program and even defend the program was because of grandfathers. Today, 6% of people who hold diplomates are lifetime certificate holders. The overwhelming percentage of internists are in a time-limited space. Yeah, but, but clearly the decision was made. And if the, if the defense of this maintenance of certification is for protect our patients from doctors that don't stay up to date, the ABIM, as you just admitted, said, we let politics um, overcome our cares and patient concerns. I think that right there, I, 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 I as a physician, I don't think I can trust the ABIM. You did it once. I still think you're probably doing it now, but you can prove me wrong. But like that's, 
you just that's a monumental thing. 1990, you just said um, we let politics take over about patient care. Well, I don't want to be part of a society that, that, that lets politics overcome patient care. Actually, I have zero interest in being part of that. Yeah, I, Aaron, I, I also said that we thought we were keeping a promise to people that the certificate they'd been given, they hadn't been told that it was going to be time limited. And so starting in 1990, we were very clear, this is a time limited certificate. So I think there was a sense of keeping a promise that we had made. Um, and and I think um, I agree with you, it it becomes difficult to explain a program when you have that built into it. Uh, but it's a very different organization today than it was in 1990. Very, very, very different. And well, remind me now, when was mock initiated? So that was, in effect, always part of the program. Um, when the program was adopted in 1990, it, it had four components. Uh, one of them was professionalism. One of them was continuing education. One of them was an assessment. And one of it was performance improvement in practice. So it was a four-part structure that all the ABMS boards were using together. And uh, the way that that program operated has changed pretty dramatically over the years. So for the first 10 or 15 years, the only education programs that counted for MOC credit were programs issued by ABIM, that's no longer true. People get their MOC points doing all kinds of CME. They're able to select what they think is- Yeah, the but, but Rich- but When did it become uh, required but, for me to pay for mock? When was that decision that I have to pay for mock? Yeah. That wasn't always the case, that we would have to pay an additional fee for our maintenance. And Rich, in, fair, in fairness to Aaron, yeah. uh, just hear one thing, because yes, uh, you can attend and get a CME and sometimes the CME could be part of MOC, uh, that is accurate, but you have to double pay because you're actually paying for the CME to get your CME credit, and then you have to pay the ABIM to accept the CME that you already paid for. You gotta so, pay for the blessing of the ABIM who already left politics. And, and remember, the CME, most CMEs are accepted by as a category one credit by the AMA. Right, so, um... MOC qualifying CME is not the same as category one CME. There are some more requirements to it, uh, which is part of why all CME does not qualify for MOC. And we built a collaboration with ACCME to do that. And so one of the things, for example, that happens um, when people earn MOC points, there is a, a seamless transition when you do it with an ACCME accredited program that that shows up at EBIM, but that's the result of over a million dollars we invested in building a link with ACCME so that when people in the program earn points, they wouldn't have to be photocopying certificates and sending CME certificates to EBIM and, and carrying them around. So we built a seamless educational interface. But going back to what the, what the fee structure was, once the program was once every 10 years, you came and took a large exam and the entire fee for the program was in that one fee. And what ABM started to do in 2013 was says, well, you don't have to pay the whole fee at that time. You can spread that out over 10 years if you want. And so we created the option of you could pay for one year, you could pay for two years, you could pay for 10 years, but it was always a 10 year program that was being funded. 
And it used to be that you paid for it at one time when you took the exam. And then we said, no, you can pay for the program on an annual basis if you want. But the value that ABIM is generating is reporting you as certified by aggregating a bunch of information about you, including the assessment, aggregating that information and publicly reporting that you are board certified. You have met this set of standards. And that's the value. That's the value that people use for privileging and credentialing. Board certified doctors have higher salaries. So there's significant value in being board certified. And what gives it value is that there's a program behind it that has standards and meaning and substance. And that's what gives it value. But we we fund that either with a once every 10 year payment or an annual payment. But one way or another, we need to fund that. So, Rich, one of the questions that I've received was from a physician, uh, from an oncologist who did sit for the 10 year program. He actually did get the 10 year. So uh, sat for the big exam. And within a couple of days of finishing the 10 year program, which he paid for, he received that now he needs to pay for the MOC. So he just finished the recertified. He sat for the board exam, recertified, I think paid $700 or $800, something like that. He sent me the information. And he said, within a couple of days, I received, now I need to maintain the exam I just passed and I need to keep paying $220 per certificate. And I just passed the 10-year exam. So why is that? Again, what I'd say is we're operating a comprehensive program over the course of career. But I just passed 10-year exam. Remember that. Right. And and the payment at that time was for that exam up to that time. The fee schedule has changed. The $220 is a per certificate fee that we rolled out two years ago. And the same time we rolled out the LKA a year and a half ago. And again, the concept is where the value comes is being certified. That's where we that's where we contribute value to the doctors. And now doctors have a variety of pathways that they can be on and get there. But one way or another, there's a lot of moving parts to that program. We're offering, uh, we're offering assessments in, in 21 different disciplines. And Aaron, hematology is not that large a discipline. Um, general internal medicine is a lot larger. It costs about the same to do an exam for hematology or for ID as it does for internal medicine. But what we do is offer exams across all of the disciplines at the same fee, because we think that it's our responsibility to maintain the integrity of the discipline of internal medicine across all the different disciplines. And so we're basically operating an enterprise that is generating 21 different exams, is generating LKAs, is maintaining customer service, finance, legal, communications, all that stuff that an organization has. And basically, we went from a pay it once every 10 years to you can pay it over, you can pay it each year. And that's. I I guess I want to make sure Aaron gets a chance to respond to this as well as uh, I want him to comment why he started the petition. But but I think I think what he didn't answer is this is a recertification. So somebody is recertified at the 10 year mark. So he had an exam, then recertified at the 10 year mark. He just finished the recertification. Why does he need to do a mock? He just finished recertified exam that he paid for. So effectively, Chadi, if he didn't pay, um, if he just passed certification. Recertification. If he just passed recertification, 
No one loses certification for failure to pay. If he didn't do anything for five years, he would be reported as certified. Now, at the end of over those five years, at the end of those five years, he would need to have earned 100 MOC points. And he would not be able to get credit for those points if he was not current in his payment because that's how the program is structured, that we we, we recognize and acknowledge yeah. in current okay. accounts. But if he didn't do a thing for those five years, okay. he would still be reported as okay. being certified. Aaron, but that's um, assuming he did the MOC points. What if he didn't maintain the MOC points? Would he be considered certified? The requirements are he needs to earn some points within two years and 100 points within five years. Exactly. So if he didn't do those things, he would not be considered certified. Is that correct? That's correct. Was that rule in place always? When did that rule become in place? That rule came in place in 2013. Yeah, exactly. So when I took my board, that rule wasn't in place. I was promised I'm good for 10 years, just like the old geezers in 1990 were promised that they're 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 things certified for life, and you didn't want to break that promise. But you guys, the ABIM, was perfectly fine being political in 1990, but then in 2013, for people like me. You were fine changing the rule book on us. That's exactly what you guys did. So I think what we what we realized. You just told us you did. Yeah. Well, what we realized over the. So why are you okay changing? So you were, first of all, you didn't care about patients in 1990 enough to you. So you changed the rules for the this the the grandfathered in because you didn't want to break a promise. Although you were breaking a promise to patient, if you go by the viewpoints of your organization. But in 2013, you were. Okay, breaking the promise. So you guys did the opposite. Uh, 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 so either way, you're wrong, if whatever side you, you side on. So you can see that that would irritate physicians like me when you say, well, if they didn't do anything, then they don't deserve to remain certified. I would beg to argue if I don't do maintenance of certification, I'm doing quite a bit. Uh, uh, I am reading on my, so we are doctors committed to lifelong earning. We have, you would think an organization would trust doctors. There's already a lack of trust in doctors, and you would hope that our leading organizations would trust doctors. So we all do CME as is. That is required for our credentialing and our privileges at our individual hospitals. Okay. Actually, I do it because I like learning about hematological malignancies and medicine and internal medicine. So we're already required to do that. We're required to do that for our state boards that make us pay a lot of money. We have internal peer review committees. All places do. We're getting all this. So when you say they do nothing, what you actually mean is they did a lot of stuff, but they just didn't do the gold, the rubber stamped internal board uh, ABIM, what you guys consider to be something that requires us to pay you $220 per uh, the initial board. And then I think it's a little bit, I think you guys cheap make it a little bit cheaper for the subsequent boards. And then when you say it's not a lot of time and a lot, a lot of stress, I got three boards and guess what? I want to keep them up. I spent my couple grand on each one when I did these and I take pride. See those diplomas? I hang them up in my office. I should probably take them down because I'm not mock certified. So, but but regardless of that, you know, three boards, these LKs, these mocks, getting these payments in on time, that's a lot of stuff. Even forget about me even paying and doing it. I, I'm like anxious just thinking about keeping up with it. Nonetheless, all my other credentialing responsibilities, my state license, my DEA, my uh, renewal privileges at the hospital, it's just one more thing that wasn't in the rule book when I started for this. And, Let me take will, my initial will, board exam. Will, is yeah. that what you start, uh, Aaron? Is that why you started the petition? Because yeah, obviously I, we're here today because of a petition that has gathered uh, close to, um, it's over 10,000 uh, signatures. Tell us why you started the petition. Because, you know, physicians like, it's just, I love our job. We have the best job in the world. I, I'm truly a clinician. 
I'm extremely privileged that I get to take care of patients with life-threatening blood cancers that are sometimes on the brink of death and we can cure them with what modern science has done. And the, the rule book in hematologic oncology changes on a monthly basis uh, uh, with new approvals. So even if I did once a year, I wouldn't be keeping up with it. And I keep up with that because I care about my patients. And I want them to do well, like just about every physician. And, you know, we just have our, our profession's gotten not worse, but just more burdensome. We just have, you know, all these forms to sign, uh, insurance companies to deal with. And it's just a thousand emails a day and it's taken away from the satisfaction. And, you know, I get the email from the EBIM. I get like three of them a week that says you didn't pay this thing. It just, it broke me. I was just at the point where I was like, I'm done. I, like I, I want, you know, I, I'm done dealing with this. I don't even care about the money. It's just one more thing. And if physicians, I've never met a physician who says, man, I got home, I did that mocker. Okay. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I know your surveys say that, but there's no physician out there that truly feels that way. Uh, at least I have not met them uh, nor on Twitter. Uh, so I'm like, here we are. We all basically 95 to 100% agree that this is BS stuff that we waste money and time and anxiety on. Why are we all doing it? We're smart doctors. Why are we doing this? Well, I know why we're doing it because this board means a lot. And we know that our privileges and our livelihood and our family and everything is dependent on keeping it up. And it's just easier for me to shut up, pay the 220, sit at home, do the LKA while I'm Googling it as fast as I can or up to dating it. Like this isn't like a test of my brain powers, how fast I can use a Google. And I'm doing it because it's easier to just shut up and do it. At least that's how I feel. And Rich, and Rich, yeah. and, and I'd I want to respond to that. But uh, I was going to keep on going. Am I, can I, no, I no, no, keep going. So that's a culmination of everything. And I'm fortunate uh, to have a, a, an account on Twitter that is, um, is visible because I spend a lot of time teaching people because I like teaching. That's how I learn. Uh, I, I, that's uh, the best part about being in academic medicine is that I get to teach, uh, including teaching my patients. So I just said, I'll start a petition. I'm not really known as the activist type, but I said, I don't agree with this. I suspect everyone I talk to doesn't deal with it. And I tweeted it. And you could see less than two weeks. Uh, I'm looking right now, 10,147 people have signed this uh, saying that this isn't to get rid of our certification. This is to say, stop with adding each additional game to us. We're done with it. And we're not going to put up with it. I know this won't make you change, but at least it shows for once that physicians become united on an issue we all agree on. And it has gotten some press. It's gotten you to agree to talk with me. I mean, well, I, I, ho I hope yeah. it leads to yeah. some change, positive yeah. change. But I think, Rich, in fairness, I've never I've been doing this podcast for four years. I've 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 dealt with a lot of topics. I have yet <laughs> to find one topic that every physician agrees. Republican, on. Democrat. I mean, this is like it's amazing. This is this is literally the one topic that I could not find. And I, I tried because I wanted to bring somebody who actually likes the mock and likes the, and everybody I found was either paid by the ABIM or works somehow within the ABIM. So help me understand if you genuinely believe that this helps physicians, why can't I find one doctor that agrees? And why do I have over 10,000 signatures say that this is not good? I certainly followed the conversation on X and Twitter, and we clearly have a lot of clinical colleagues who are experiencing burnout and stress, anger, and dissatisfaction, uh, both with their practices and with what ABIM does. And we do seem to have a very polarized community where it's hard for people to even talk to each other. The whole reason I'm here is the program has evolved based on the feedback that we get. And I think that the 
the idea that um, we just get to say, uh, oh, I got this uh, over the course of career. Oh, I'm a good person. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm studying. I'm paying attention. We know a lot that we're not good at self-assessment. Uh, how many of us are going to say we're below average drivers? How many of us are going to say that we're below average doctors? But the state, how remember, the state is, I mean, I can't, I mean, in order for you to get the state licensure, you have to really be a good citizen, obviously, pay your dues and demonstrate CME in your discipline. Sorry, forget even the state licensure. So what will make, so in your opinion, what will make me from a bad doctor to a good doctor, or not even that, like one that, you know, I get, you're right, you can't report what you're bad at, is sitting at home and up-to-dating and Googling 120 questions? Come on, dude. I mean, come on. That's, Chadi, is that not what it is? I, no, I, look, so Rich, um, I want to I want to be I want to be I want to be neutral, but I'm going to give you my that's own ridiculous. experience with MOC because I am triple boarded and I do the longitudinal knowledge assessment. Uh-huh. And, 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 and I've talked to several folks and, and a lot of folks will tell you that this is really not honestly a test of knowledge in their in their view. They feel that this is a test of how fast you can Google or up to date the answer. And in fact, I can tell you that there's one very respectful position um, uh, that he really feels that uh, the entire test, and he texted me, the entire test is simply a test of efficiency in how to use Google and up-to-date. This discriminates against older folks and those who are not as computer savvy. This process does not test medicine or knowledge. Well, but they're old tests, enough, they're grandfathered out, so we at least but, protect them. But yeah. it tests who can form an intelligent query to answer a trivia question. Everyone types the keywords on Google or up to date and moves on. Many have directed message me that there is no learning and it is learning in disguise. Any answers to that? Yeah, I, I first of all, I, I think that's a fundamentally inaccurate description of the way the questions work. Let's recognize, first of all, that all of those questions are created by people practicing and specializing in the field. Um, we have over 300 physicians who are on various committees. We have 800 item writing uh, doctors writing questions. So they're written by people who are experts in the field. They're not lookup questions. They're clinical simulations. And in fact, we did a study when we put, when we made up-to-date available, it actually didn't change people's scores. What it did change was the people with ability were the, the, the questions separated better people with ability from people without ability, because you need to know how to use up to date, you need to know how to formulate a clinical question. Up to date did not help people of low ability. It is not a lookup uh, exam. There's no point in having a look lookup exam when everybody has a, an iPhone, and you're just looking for a fact. They're clinical simulations. Now, they're not all perfect. What we, our surveys tell us, for example, on the LKA, that 70% of doctors across all the disciplines believe it's, it's a fair assessment of their knowledge in the discipline. Hematology, it's lower. It's 60%. So maybe we haven't calibrated the hematology exam as well as we should have. Part of how we do that is we get feedback from people, and then we we fix it and calibrate it and give that feedback to the committees overseeing the creation of the questions. But there's nobody but expert physicians who know what the discipline is and who define what staying current in the discipline means, and they're not they are not 
designed that way. They're designed. But, but, but when I have, when I have literally, you know, I mean, I have uh, just, I actually put this uh, somewhere here. I have Dr. Vincent Raj Kumar, who is one of the world authorities in multiple myeloma, like literally. He actually wrote, Rich, he is the section editor of Up to Date on multiple myeloma. And he thinks half of your myeloma questions are wrong. I hope he'll and, take it up. I hope he'll take it up with Maury Gertz, who's the the chair of the hematology uh, committee, the hematology board, who's chief of medicine at Mayo, and who's a hematologist. I I hope that Vince will will raise that with Maury. I mean, it says it's not real. It's not reflective of real life. In real life, we don't have time pressure of finding an answer within three minutes of our clinical problems. We almost can take time to research and things like that. So, Shadi, I got to ask you, I, I really got to ask you, we, we, we get a lot of pushback on the time. And one of the things that's different between a point in time assessment where you have three hours and you can manage time among the questions the way you want, and an LKA where you have a timed question, one of the differences is that you have to have a timed question when you're doing an LKA format. But for people to say, we want it to be like real life, I, Gosh, when I was in practice, uh, I started seeing patients at seven o'clock in the morning. I had a bunch of patients scheduled till 10 o'clock, like seven o'clock started, 10 o'clock came. I had the patients I had to see. I had the time that I had. None of us have infinite time in practice. None of us do. And the idea that we need accessible knowledge, knowledge that we can reach for to guide us in the exam room, because we don't even reliably have time to look stuff up when we're seeing patients. And a lot of us will just rely on the heuristics of what we think we know, which is why self-assessment is such an unreliable way to do this, that people will rely on what they think they know. Nobody thinks they don't know what they don't know, and they can get into serious trouble that way. So testing the, the biggest difference, the, the biggest part is the thing that people struggle with the most. In the petition, Aaron, you say that you'd like a different form of assessment. And I guess I'd ask you, uh, because I think it's sort of the question at the core, I, I think what people really want is to go back to lifetime certification. And is it really the case that everybody who's certified initially still ought to be certified today? Do you not know any doctors who get kind of interested in photography and maybe they're going to meetings about photography and maybe they're not going to the ASH meetings? And maybe they're not Aaron, meetings. Let me, let me have Aaron response. What you said may be true, but I can say the exact very same thing for everyone who is certified in doing your test. I bet there are some of them that shouldn't be certified, even though they're doing all your stuff. And you cannot provide me one shred of evidence, despite the $71 million your organization makes a year, that that's not the case, uh, that that's the case. So, yes, you're right. There probably are some doctors who are don't maintain that are not good. And I suspect that there are many or just as many. And no one could say all the other way who are, are maintaining. Unfortunately, why, why, clinical Rich, medicine why not, is complicated. Why not do a study? You, like, why you not cannot, do a study? No, no. You could not. Clinical medicine is complicated. We are. We have to move beyond a question a question just it's just impossible to accurately assess a physician's knowledge with a test question i get it they have their place uh, 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 but but it's 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 not an accurate assessment i know you have your data i read all your studies all the studies were retrospective they were performed by the american board of internal medicine so i don't even think they're worth discussing and for an organization that makes 71 million dollars a year 51% for mock i think you could study it first of all 
every every year you need to maintain or whatever your arbitrary amount of time is. Why not every six months? Why not every month? Maybe every three years. I have no freaking idea because we actually never looked at this. So my 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 claim is that I am fine with an initial test. I guess there's something about your capstone when you finish all of hematology. And I actually found something rewarding about reviewing everything again uh, 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 right before that test. But I am against, and I stand with this, and I will do this for the rest of my career. I'm against having to pay arbitrary amounts of money that you can actually literally raise at any point you want. I have no control over that for the rest of my life to maintain certification on a, on a, on a way that has not truly ever been shown to help any human being take better care of patients. Uh, I, I'm fundamentally against that. And to say that we, again, you keep on saying you need this, but we are doing this. We are doing CME. We have our own internal things. And as you said, you're a hematologist oncologist. You represent only 6% with three boards. Every doctor is unique. Exactly. We're all unique. And a simple test question that you guys do is not a unique thing. Yeah, it's unique for the specialty, but it's not unique for the physician. We all have our own unique needs. And I fulfill my own unique needs for me and my colleagues do it differently. So, uh, you know, we can continue to hear how good mock is, but we've already shown now that you've made a political reason as a as a as a as a as a organization 1990 because you promised doctors one thing, yet you made the opposite uh, thing in 2013 where you promised doctors one thing and we're okay at changing the rules. Uh, we have a test that has no reasonable data that it helps patients, people, and it angers a bunch of physicians. There's known harms. There's without any like. You, like I so, think so speaking yeah. of harms, I mean, I think I think that that's a good segue. I want to I want to talk about something first, Rich. I mean, the the choosing wisely campaign is something that I believe a lot of folks commend the ABIM on, frankly, and uh, and it's one of those things that I, I believe um, it was a good initiative in terms of fostering discussion about you know harms versus benefits and things like that with any intervention. And it is fair to say that the mock was a new program that was started, you know, several years back. Did you study? I mean, you we can study these things. Did you study the potential harmful effects of mock? Why, to Aaron's point, why can't we study, you know, randomize folks to mock every year versus every three years, or um, none? Uh, versus none. I mean, I guess I guess there are certain things if you really want to get to the core answers for. We can really study those. And Choosing Wisely campaign is an example where you, the ABM spearhead, and I think a lot of people admired you for that. Why can't we study the harmful effects of MUG? Well, thanks for the shout out about Choosing Wisely. Uh, the, we do study a lot of things about MOC. We do that um, both at the aggregate level of asking people about their experience in the program. Um, and, you know, for example, in, in the LKA, um, we're finding that 80 plus percent of people would recommend it to colleagues. Four out of five of the diplomates who have a choice between the LKA and the point in time assessment are choosing uh, the LKA. Yeah, and but Rich, 100% would recommend none if they had a choice. So that's actually not entirely true. There are a bunch of people who say this has changed my practice. There are I mean, one that doesn't work for your organization or like more than two. I, I swear, I, show me that data. Uh, for $70 million, I should be able to see that. So we we do part of how we try to make the program better um, is we actually try to engage in conversations with the doctors. One of the challenges with Twitter and the polarized world and people shouting at each other is it doesn't give a chance to kind of evolve and learn. You were saying, Aaron, that that the playbook for bone marrow transplantation changes all the time. Don't you think the playbook for assessment needs to change, too? 
we don't want to be stuck in the same paradigm we had 30 or 40 years ago. So it does evolve. It will evolve. And the commitment is to transparency about the evolution. And I, I think that the, the thing that I hear the most from people is why isn't CME alone enough? And, you know, frankly, uh, people, people say, uh, oh, you have a monopoly. Well, the credentialing, the credentialing is actually, there's no monopoly. There's a lot of competition in this space. Anybody can issue a credential, anybody. I mean, Chadi, you could say, I'm going to issue certification in podcasting. Send me $50 and I'll send you a certificate that you're a podcaster. Anybody can do that. At the end of the day, the value and meaning of a certificate comes from the standards behind it. And we are evolving those. And you're right. We didn't get it right, right out of the box. We don't have it perfectly right today. We have the capacity as an organization to fine tune that. That's what we use our resources to do is to build connections with doctors and evolve the way we do our work. But have you surveyed? I mean, look, I mean, I, you know, I, and again, uh, I, I, I wrote this here because this is a question that came to me. And I think it's really, really fair. Um, you can survey your doctors, your constituents, uh, Rich. I mean, conduct a survey to your constituents. Ask them what they feel about this. I think judging from 10,000 signatures we've received, that survey will be extremely unfavorable. And if you, I mean, a lot of folks said, you know, uh, we've never been asked. This is unilateral. And to, to Aaron's point, tomorrow, tomorrow, the ABIM, literally tomorrow, you can say we are going to charge four hundred dollars per uh, per mark, and there's not even one person who could tell you no. So we haven't raised our fees in five years, but you could, right? So any business could, and, yeah. and you know, it, it's. Uh, I, I think that the, there is, if there's something we learned at ABIM over the last decade, it was that we had lost trust with the doctors. We weren't structured. I don't think we made the transition from lifetime certification to time-limited time certification very well. And I've been there 10 years, and um, a lot of the focus of my leadership has been trying to make us a different organization, which has more authentic connection with the community, which it needs to have. And then we listened to the community, and we evolved the program based on that. But we are living in a world now where... Anybody can be anything on the internet. Nobody knows if you're a dog on the internet. We can have all kinds of people claiming all kinds of expertise. And the fundamental reason for a certifying body is to create independent third-party validation based on a community of standards. It's not- but Have standards. you ever surveyed your diplomats about their satisfaction? I, yes, we do. I, and, and not in terms I've of- I've never gotten that survey. So you- I, I get a 10 emails to pay the 220. I haven't gotten the survey yet. Like uh, when you when you do assessments with ABIM, we ask you about your experience with the assessment. We ask you whether we thought you thought it was a fair assessment of your knowledge. We aggregate that data. We're constantly looking at the programs as to whether people going through them. Uh, so, you know, so Rich, who has access to this data? I received so many questions about the data and the data sharing. And there were many people who were concerned about the lack of conflict of interest statements on the ABIM website. So oh, basically, boy. I, um, you know, no, but I mean, I, I've been told again, like I'm just saying, I literally have a question that came here 
Uh, a lot has been stated about data cell, data sharing, the lack of conflicts of interest statements on the ABIM website, including leaders of the organization. Uh, and the uh, person asked, who is the data being sold to? Um, uh, are my answers being sold? Uh, are my Is my identity being sold? Uh, so who really has access to this data? Chadi, I can categorically tell you ABIM never sells diplomate data. I'm going to say that again. ABIM never sells diplomate data. We don't. Do you sell their um, answers? No, we don't. Um, we we don't. We don't sell diplomate data. We don't sell answers. We we do research with collaborators on the data that we have relating to right answers and wrong answers. So, you know, we we studied um, the people's changing patterns of opioid prescribing over the years that the standard of care changed from pain is a fifth vital sign, let's give it to everybody, to, oh my goodness, we've started an opioid epidemic in this country. The doctors who were in the program and performing well on the exam changed their opioid prescribing a lot faster than the doctors who didn't and weren't. And that's the kind of thing, again, it's not hard. Like there are doctors who are doing what yeah, you're but, doing. But Rich, I mean, I'll have Aaron comment. I'll have Aaron comment Cause and I mean, maybe possibly the doctors that do good on exams are going to be the kind of doctors that uh, are going to uh, uptake information faster and do better with opiates. That's uh, the only way to answer those questions, unfortunately, was randomized data, which is expensive, but your uh, organization has the funds. So Getting back so to the what, what is the asked. ABMS solution? I don't know. The yeah. ABMS Solutions LLC is a for-profit. So what? How? What is? What is ABMS Solutions LLC? Uh, you'd have to talk to ABMS about that because that's you're not on the board. board. You're on the board. I, of I am on the board um, as a, as one of the twenty-four member boards at ABMS. Um, the ABMS Solutions is the company that ABMS created to conveniently offer hospitals, health systems, practices. A hospital wants to know, I've got 3,000 doctors across all different specialties. Are they board certified? A hospital wants to know that. And ABMS Solutions is the way they find that out. And does ABMS Solutions charge hospitals for uh, sharing that data? Yes, they do. They have to build systems and maintain systems and maintain relationships, and they have to do data exchange. Is that the only that sounds like selling our data. Um, you just said you don't. It, it, it's actually, I, I would put it as instead of having you go to your medical staff office and show them a copy of a certificate from us, it's a way for them to seamlessly get those data and know what they need to know to do their work, which is to offer patients the highest quality doctors that they can in their community. It sounds like selling large aggregates of data, but I actually don't even really care about that. I, you know, I, I, the the bottom line is though I want to get back to one question, Shadi, that you asked because sure. it wasn't answered. You've you've studied the potential benefits of this, although I disagree with the methodology of those studies and how they were done, not by an independent source. The harms of any intervention we do, there's always harms for the most part. In oncology, I know when I give a chemo, it's got harms, so I better know very well it has some benefit before I can feel good giving chemotherapy to my patient. Um, I think the harms to mock and some of these things are, are uh, uh, obvious, but I'll state them. Um, there's a financial uh, toxicity, there's a time toxicity, and there's a stress toxicity. And actually for me, it's the stress. It's just one more thing I need to keep track of in my busy life. Uh, uh, um, you know, have this been, is there a proposal for you guys to systematically look at this and quantify it? And uh, if not, why haven't you done it already? Uh, uh, any thoughts? 
So I think what we focus on is trying to minimize that and trying to design programs where we're lessening that. So, uh, you know, we invested in creating an app. We invested in the LKA. We invested in trying to make interacting with us more smoothly. You know, the $220, that's less than I pay for my state license. It's less than I pay for DEA. Um, and, you know, it, yes, it's money. And but, but, you know, but Rich, two please, things. Please, In terms of the harmful effect, what we're talking about is burnout, position attrition. I think it's almost like, think about, I wanted to think of a thought experiment with me just a little bit. Think of um, me asking a very busy practitioner of doing pre-authorization six times a year only. And say, listen, you don't have to do pre-authorization for the entire year, but only six times a year you have to do pre-authorization. I bet you that even one time is too much. I think it's it's physicians feel there's always being asked of doing more and more, and they have really no choice in the matter. You just have to do more. And if I need to practice, I must get the blessing of the ABIM. And if I don't, I will lose my staff privileges. So you're really stuck. Your livelihood as a physician is literally trapped by the mock and the recertification. So I hear you, Chadi, that um, it is a really difficult time right now for physicians in clinical practice and the pandemic didn't. And I'm not going to bring your tweet and the ad that was extremely, let's face it, was very, very, very bad. <laughs> You know, about let's do the LKA on vacation. I mean, it shows some judgment in the organization. You did delete it at the end, and you did issue an apology. We did, um, and and though I think we were careful to say that that the program respects people's agency, it respects people's choice. There's no good time for for physicians to be learning. You know, we're in a world where we don't get we don't get payment for education. We don't get many of us don't get payment for time off. When I was in practice, I was bearing the costs of all the educational programs that I was engaged in. And I think it is an incredibly stressful time right now to be a physician. I, I no question about that. But I think that the sources of burnout are, are much more related to electronic health records and a whole variety of compliance issues. And what we're hearing from a lot of people with respect to the LKA is that they find it fun, they enjoy it, they find it a learning experience. You may not individually, and and we're not never going to get a hundred percent of the doctors, but our data is telling us that a lot of people say this is a really helpful and fun way to learn that I can do it at my own pace, and and I think that's the thing we were trying to get out about the program is people have control and make choices. We certainly weren't trying to create an expectation that people were going to do okay. So, I mean, Aaron, Aaron, people might say, I mean, what's the big deal? It's 120 questions per year. What's the big deal, Aaron? It's just, it's, it's again, going back to the root of what is burnout. We are losing control of everything. It's just one more thing. That's what everyone tells us. Every organization or every little thing I got to do, they're like, it's just one more thing. Well, first of all, this is not one more thing. This is quite a few more things for someone like me that cost money and time and stress. And it's tied to my license or like my ability to practice. So we can't keep on adding one more thing. And at, one, at some point, we have to stand up and stop this. And what I think is the most you know, disheartening thing about this one more thing is that we did this to ourselves. This is physicians, our colleagues, our brothers and sisters that are imposing on ourselves. 
like as you just said, you have many physicians that volunteer for your organization or they get paid. I don't, I don't think it's much. Uh, I urge every physician that listens to this podcast, if you get asked to work for ABIM, say, no, we have complete control. Of this. They can't do this without us. Stop doing this to ourselves. I know it looks good on the resume, but it, it, there's better things you can do. Uh, it, it's, it's, not, it's not worth it. So you can't, everyone can say it's one more thing, but it, 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 it's cumulative and it does lead to burnout. I, I'm telling you right now, it, it does. And you guys, and if you, if it doesn't, then study it and prove it uh, 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 again, like all this. And, and the, the scariest thing is what Shadi said is what's to stop you from raising it or increasing it. There is nothing to stop it. I know you say you won't, but we've seen how that's gone in the past. So, I mean, I'm fairly confident over the course. Of my uh, actually, he has not said he won't, but if you yeah. want to commit that you will yeah. never raise the fees, I'd oh, like I've, to say. I, I, don't, even, like I don't even care. I, I, to be honest, like I want it to go away. And I'm not going to stop until it goes away, or at least try. And so, I know we can do this. Yeah. So, uh, Rich, maybe you can comment on this, and then maybe comment. The state of Florida um, voted against the MOC. Uh, I'm going to read to this to you verbatim. The Florida Medical Association supports legislation to amend Florida Statute Section 4583312 to allow physicians that have received initial recognition by the ABMS as a board-certified specialist to continue to advertise as such, regardless of whether the certification is maintained in the future. This is not law yet, and I'm, I'm going to probably predict that you will lobby against this to become a law, although I don't know. But the Florida Medical Association have passed a resolution that we don't really care about recertification or mock response. Right. I, I don't think it's a great plan to invite state legislatures to regulate medical practice broadly. I just don't think that's a great plan. Um, I don't think that's worked out well in most states around the country on a variety of issues. And I would hesitate to ask a state legislature to, um, to get involved in what is physician self-regulation. You know, um, the origin of the boards goes back to the 1865 meeting of the AMA House of Delegates, where the New York delegation had a complaint that there were doctors who said they had special expertise in heart disease, and they didn't have any special expertise in heart disease. It was just a naked attempt to grab patients. And what they decided was they needed an independent third party to validate and verify the expertise of physicians. Folks, I hope that independent third party is always composed of physicians. I hope it is always. Yeah, but but Rich, you guys are self-appointed, right? I mean, you are not elected officials. You, You're self-appointed. No, we're not elected. That's true. There's uh, only two CEOs. There's only been two CEOs ever you for see the a ABIM. Building up in an organization. One is yeah. one was you, and one is Christine Castle, who I actually researched for this podcast and. There were two articles uh, about her in ProPublica about the conflict of interest and a lot of things. And, and and a lot of folks asked me to ask you, do you have any conflict of interest to disclose publicly to people who are listening? I, I do not. And by the way, the comment earlier about conflicts of interest on, on ABIM on our website, relationships of all of our governance is listed on our website. You can go to our website. And we hope that physicians will get involved in helping us make the program better because, again, we need physicians. But to Rich, the, the physicians better. are telling you they don't want the program if you survey them. Some physicians are telling you that. Um, and some physicians believe that it's important that we maintain. I, I would say over 10,000 told you this in two weeks. And maybe if you, you can start a petition today 
for folks who are in support of the mock and LKA. And let's see how many signatures you get. I don't, I, I think we're living at a time where anger and rage really sells. Uh, and and it really, it's like, you know, if you can appeal to people's frustration and anger, you can get all kinds of energy. And if you try to appeal to people's better nature and better angels and their intrinsic desire to do the right thing for their patients, I don't think you're going to get all sorts of energy behind that. And I think it's sad, but I think the reality is that we need to preserve the ability to regulate ourselves. We shouldn't invite state legislatures into that. And if physicians engage, we make the program better. It's a very different program today. Aaron, do you want to respond Aaron, to that? Send a survey to everyone who is boarded and ask the question, would you prefer mock to stay or mock to go? Do you on it? Uh, do it. Just do it. Why not? I, I, if you, if the, that's not anger, I get it. Twitter anger sells. Just you do it. Send it to everyone, including me, because I'm part and send that. And, and I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer and so do you, but if, just do it. And then listen think, to your physicians that you I serve. Think, I think there are lots of functions that we collectively need that we struggle to support individually. Uh, I think if, if the IRS sent out a survey saying, how do you feel about paying taxes? Um, I think most people would say we don't actually want to pay taxes. Oh my God, Rich! If you compare ABM to the IRS, you're going to lose. Don't do that. Yeah, no. Okay, so the motor vehicle, you know, any number, no, but look, look. I mean, any number, you know, if if your synagogue, if your church sends you, uh, you know, how would you feel about not paying fees? I I, I just think it's it's kind well, of well, no, no, that's question. different. If I don't pay fees to those things, I don't get those services. If I don't pay the fees to mock, I don't get your services. I'm perfectly fine with that. So those are false. And I actually get services for my taxes that I want, please. And I want those things. So I actually, I think that's a, a false analogy. Send the, send it. You're not going to send it or you could, because you know the answer and we don't support it. Even though are you, you have afraid of the answer, Rich. Yeah. I think that we operate in a framework that helps physicians preserve trust with patients. But we don't think that. I, you may you not. think it as the CEO of ABIM. I don't think it, and then get the data that shows we think it, and you have not. So all these things you're saying, you were just saying, just like I can make up crap on Twitter, you're you're just blowing stuff up. I mean, right now you might be right, but I need some evidence. I'm a physician, so and I, and if you didn't have a lot of money to get evidence, that'd be one thing. You guys do have a lot of money, so show me with evidence to think. I listen. I'm wrong. You can ask Shadi. I've been wrong on things. I'm the first to admit. Like I've been made some big statements about drugs, and I've been wrong. And I just I acknowledge it when I'm convinced. You I mean, in, in, in fairness to Aaron, yeah. one of the, and I wrote this here, one of the key messages of choosing wisely is to identify and get rid of unnecessary medical tests and treatments that lack strong supporting evidence. And that's correct. The three of us, the three of us agree with. So the ABIM Foundation, you strongly support getting rid of practices in medicine that are superfluous and unnecessary. So why not study this? Study it. We have strong evidence that there is support for the Which, where is it? I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Again, I invite people to go to our website. We have I read I saw the, it. Show I, me the paper right now. I, I You I'm don't, because there were five retrospective studies that were done by you guys. That is not good evidence. And if, if that's what we think good evidence is from the leader of our physician organization or the ABIM, I, I want to stay away from ABIM because we need some methods and evidence interpretation. Like actually... That would be those would be actually useful courses. Uh, we actually lack ability to interpret evidence. It is quite complicated. So can I can 
yeah, go ahead, uh, Rich. I want to go through a couple of things really fast. You know, I think there are people in the educational space who do research on education and testing and who say, first of all, cognitive skills must be kept current. I can send you a paper from university. Unless you were born before 1990. Let's not forget that. Then it doesn't matter. Self-assessment is not enough because people aren't good at knowing what they don't know. Testing enhances learning and attention. When people are being tested, they're focusing on learning in a way that they're not when they're not testing. And goals and consequences actually motivate people to focus and study and retain. And that comes from the educational literature, not from EBIM, University of Pittsburgh. And I, I think that we know, we collectively know that we don't know what we don't know and that we're all busy and we all have a lot of competing demands for our time. So why do you want to add more to these people? But I want to go through a couple of things. I, by the way, I did look at the ABIM website and I did not see conflict of interest. So maybe you can send me a link on this Okay. because I really looked into it uh, significantly. But uh, anyway, I, I wasn't able to find conflict of interest. I want to I want to I want to try to cover a few things because I know we're, we're at time, but we have a couple of things. Um, that I would like to to, to go through. Uh, Aaron, any comment before? I want to go into one of the things that Dr. Rajkumar tweeted, which received almost quarter million views. That's why I bring it up. It's the top 10 reasons why ABIM mock should be abolished. One, it's bad life experience that physicians almost unanimously don't like. Comment? I'm not going to comment. Number nine, the questions asked in the mock LKA or mock exam are not what we face in practice. They are often vague zebras or designed to trip people up. Experts get questions in their own field wrong. It, it's not what our data shows, Chadi, about people on the exam. Do we have an occasional question that's wrong? Absolutely, we do. Uh, do we have some questions out there that uh, that, that are that are off base? Yes, we do. Uh, but across the 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 totality of the exam. Um, no, that's just not true. Uh, Mark depresses morale. When you take a profession where people are committed to lifelong learning, do plenty of hours of CME each year and force them to a multiple choice test every three months, you know what it does to morale. You know, there are a number of people who get a fair amount of pride. Um, out of being recognized for their expertise. Uh, you know, Aaron's got the certificates on the wall. Uh, I, I think there's an opportunity for this to be a story about pride and distinction. And that has a lot to do with how we talk to ourselves about what this means. Aaron, thoughts? No, I mean, I, I, I did. I, I honestly, I did have pride. I remember when I passed that board, I, I did have pride uh, 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 that I passed a test and it was the culmination of my training, but I no longer have, uh, now I just have, I mean, you're right. I have anger towards your society. So that's because that's feedback. Someone who like, I'm, I love tests. Like, but like we can, we can yeah, study, I, we can study burnout, Rich. We really can. Yeah. I mean, I think doing a study, surveying your, your constituents, send us a survey, five question survey to all of your diplomats. You have our emails and get the feedback and take that to heart. If you genuinely really want to do this, why not do that? Because they know the answer. It's going to be get rid of mock, and they don't want to do that. Okay, number seven. It takes time away from practice research family. We are already struggling for time with medicine becoming so complicated. I think the thing that takes the most time is the work of staying current. That's a ton of work, and that takes a ton of time, and that's a ton of pressure. 
And that's not about us. That's about the pace at which knowledge changes and the work doctors have to do to stay on top of it. Number six, it's not reflective of real life. In real life, we don't have the time pressure of finding an answer within three minutes for clinical problems. We almost always can take time to research to find the correct answer when faced with complexity. Chadi, I think we already talked about that. We one talked about that. Not that there's actual time pressure in real life. Um, I'm gonna uh, number number three. I want you both to comment on this. Maybe uh, Aaron, you can take this. It says the goal of the mock is not to spread knowledge. It's a big it's a big statement. Even if we learn something meaningful during the exam, you are prohibited from discussing with other colleagues to make them aware. So the core... Yeah, I mean, go go ahead. No, go ahead, Aaron. No, I mean, you do... I will say when you do those exams and those things, you do kind of feel like a criminal. <laughs> uh, you know, with the... I understand the, the, the privacy things, but like, you know, it's just another thing that like kind of is a morale booster. And to be honest, like, again, there's nothing special on those questions that you can't get anywhere else. Uh, so I, I actually, you know, that you can't share. It's not a big I, I think the sense, honestly, Rich, I think that we feel whatever these questions are in real life, we'll be able to find the answers through colleagues, through um, through Google, through uh, up to date, everything like this. So it, it seems a lot of people feel that this is just a way, frankly, for the ABIM to make money. I understand a lot of people feel that way. I, I, I hear that a lot. Um, I, I think that to say that it's not an educational program, we don't think of ourselves fundamentally as an educational organization. We're the vehicle through which the community sets standards for itself. That's what we do. It's standard setting. And we do that by creating an expectation that not everybody gets through. And the idea that we, we want education to be part of the assessment but the professional societies do a better job with education than we do. What we really focus on is having an assessment that is able to say, this is someone who has stayed current in their field and met the standards that their peers in their field designed and created. So, so, so Rich, what, what are you, I mean, you've seen the feedback, you've gotten over 10,000 signatures. In fact, I can take a look where we are right now. I mean, I think a lot of people obviously uh, we're literally at 10,184. So, so you're the CEO of the ABIM, where you have over 10,000 diplomats telling you we're not happy with your performance. I can tell you in a publicly traded company, I'm not suggesting this, but the board of directors will call you into the room and will have a big issue. These are your shareholders. These are your shareholders. And it's trouble when you have that much distrust. How do you respond? How do you handle this as the CEO of this company? I've been working with the entire organization to build stronger relations with the community where people have a better understanding of what we do and why we do it. Um, the petition says, for example, that we're not very transparent about our finances. But the graphic on top of the petition is a screen grab from our website, which says where the money comes from and where the money goes. All of the money comes from doctors. None of it comes from industry. None of it comes from government. That's what it means to be doing professional self-regulation. So I think there are some things in the petition that reflect anger and lack of understanding and, and aren't entirely accurate. But I think the fundamental thing, 
and the line that I paid the most attention to is the idea uh, that people that the petition says um, adopting alternative methods of assessment, ABIM can restore the trust. Well, Johnny, that's what we did. Um, the original method of assessment was the point in time. We've moved toward um, toward having, first we had the knowledge check-in, now we have the LKA. Uh, it also talks about creating more specialty-specific pathways. That's work the group is doing now. I think that that's very important input that we need. We don't know how many flavors of hematologists there are. We don't know how many flavors of oncologists there are, because if we're going to try to define assessments for the flavor, for, for the way people's practices differentiate, we have to be in dialogue with, with the community that's doing that practice. And that's why I'm here. That's why we're, that's what we're trying to do. Um, I want to make sure that you both have an opportunity to summarize some of this. I also want to try to figure out next steps, if there are any. I am hoping that this dialogue continues personally. I believe it's important. I personally think, um, Rich, if I may, although I serve as the moderator of this podcast, I do believe it is timely to survey your constituents, and I believe you are not going to get a favorable response to the survey. And if that's the case, you need to go back, do some self-reflection of an organization and figure out why that is. But uh, let's start by um, Aaron. Um, do you want to say a couple of words uh, and we'll get uh, maybe a couple of concluding remarks? I think you said it. There are many flavors of everything, which is why it's really hard to do what you guys, I, I get it. It's hard what you guys are trying to do. And I don't doubt your motives. I don't. I, I, I truly think you want safer and better doctors. I don't doubt that. I just think the way we're doing it is not doing any of that and just creating a lot of harm and financial, dis all the things that we've already, were not, you know, ad nauseum discussed. Uh, um, but, you know, there's many flavors of hematologists. Well, you've already, maybe go back to the drawing board before you implement all this stuff on us. Uh, clearly, there's a lot more work to do. I have two final questions. Um, is there any chance that the ABIM itself voluntarily says, we're going to put a hold on mock? Is there any chance that, 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 that this could happen? Uh, 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 coming well, I'm, I'm going to answer so. that to you. It makes $51 million a year. Well, that's the so that's the first question. Uh, um, and then the second question is, um, you're right. I know EBM is a not-for-profit, but you guys do make $71.9 million. 35% is from Mock. I think the expenditure- 51%. 51% from 51, Mock. excuse me. The expenditures were about $58 million. And I take this from your website. Where's the- I know it's, it's, I know it's not profit, but where's the extra, there's net there of extra 11, where does that money go into? Uh, um, uh, you know, that seems like some good money that could be spent researching these things that we're talking about, not the way you're doing it now. I think if, if it's these retrospective things, I think you need to get some people better to design some better studies and use that money wisely. But those are my final two questions. I mean, is there a chance just be, you would like, if you just said you're right, like, I, I can't tell you how like happy, like, just go back to the drawing board, put a hold on this. And, and uh, you've listened, uh, or, you know, it, it, it would mean a lot. <laughs> you have the complete power. The ABIM has it. Uh, that's the simplest solution ever to fix burnout. I need to first respond to the, to the finance question, because when you have a program that people pay for 10 years, um, you have 10 years worth of cash and nine years worth of liability. So when you look at the cash balance that EBIM has, a significant portion of that money is money that needs to be put aside for the services that we've contracted to provide for people who paid in advance. You know, if, if you buy a three-year subscription to a newspaper, 
Um, they have three years worth of cash, but they owe you three years worth of program. And that's the situation that we're in. So you can't just look at the cash balance and say, oh, EBM has all that money. In fact, the amount of money we have on hand is somewhere between that, that's uncommitted and somewhere between three and four months of operating expenses, which for a nonprofit is about where people think you ought to be um, because cash flow isn't always what you think cash flow is going to be and you can wind up in trouble. So we, uh, you know, the, the, the numbers have been willfully and dramatically distorted. We do everything we can in terms of transparency to, to put out our audited financial statement. It's on our website. To put out our 990, it's on our website. A reader's guide to the 990, a reader's guide to the audited financial statement, because we don't assume doctors are accountants. So it's easy, easy to throw the numbers around, um, but, but I, I think that's been a subject of enormous distortion. Well, I appreciate the explanation. So that $12 million is actually then so that it's not profit. It's being used to. So where is that 12 million going then? It's just being held. So I don't even know. A rainy day or what? I, I'm not sure what 12 million you're talking about. Well, it says if you look at the picture, it says 71.9 million revenue. And I'm reading this from your website with expenditures of 58. Uh, I might be missing the final. It's yeah. so that. You do the math. It's, so I'm just, where's that going? Yeah. So that that's that's on a cash basis. Uh, and and that's one year picture of what happened this year. And there are other years. So that is then a per, uh, $12 million. No, oh. no, because some of that money has been received for expenses that are in the future. So somebody paid for, for 10 years of program and we have to have people answering the phone and and processing their stuff and mailing and and all the you know doing exams processing MOC points creating LKA product they paid for that in advance that's money received this year but a bunch of it is for services that we have not delivered so they don't show up on the expense side but they do show up on the revenue side that that's the answer to that. what's your other question uh, Aaron you have another question Great chance they will voluntarily revoke mock for the time being? I, I don't think the board has plans to do that. I think the board wants to evolve it. I think the board wants to make it better. I think we want to be in dialogue with the community to make it better. Uh, but I think that that we believe that there is value added. You know, it's a national credential. And a hematologist in- But, but, but I guess, but I guess again, I, I, I don't want to go back to, to, re, to say the same thing, but when you say you believe there is value added, your constituents don't believe that, and you can't say there is value added, Rich, in all fairness, unless you study the harmful effect. I mean, that's what choosing wisely is all about, right? Our constituents are not only the physicians. Our constituents are- the healthcare delivery system that is looking for a way to identify which doctors they can trust, our patients who are identifying for how to know which doctor they can trust. Patients don't have a way to know. Do you have any level one evidence that passing the mock is improving patient outcomes or care? I have described a variety of evidence. No, level one evidence. evidence. We, we, might we know what. At the level one, listen, if I were a patient, I go, yeah, I want my doc board certified. There's no way on earth they know, not even physicians kind of understand this. There's no way on earth they actually know like these nuances that we're talking about. I truly believe, and actually you could do this study. What they do on them on all and be like, is this adding any additional value? Now that you know, uh, 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 you know. What they do want, Aaron, is they want to believe that the doctor they see 
is going to be practicing today's medicine and is they not want to believe, relying. but I want to know that's a different thing. And, and I want to know, and this is a process with harms that we discussed and all these other problems with it. Um, I want to know, not believe. I mean, like, you know, uh, th that's not medicine. Uh, my final thing is that I want to say is that like, what are the next steps? Because clearly ABIM is not going to get rid of mock. I think the next steps as physicians is we have to go to our, uh, um, our respective uh, societies that are also composed of physicians that are supposed to uh, represent us. I think strong statements from our societal leaders being like, you know, we got this under control. We don't need this uh, would make uh, very big impacts. Other steps that I, I mean, you might disagree, but I think it's that like, and that's gonna be hard to do. That's why I truly need, you know, big leaders in medicine to, to, to stand their ground on this. I think we get some societies to step up. Um, I also plan on discussing with our credentialing committee and our uh, board of directors. I've spoken with our vice chancellor. Anyone can do this at their own hospital. And I do think if there's enough noise and pushback created that we might be able to make some change. Ultimately, we'll require uh, uh, legislation, uh, uh, which will require education. So it's not going to be an overnight process unless ABI makes the decision to, to put it on hold. In no way am I, I am not interested, nor any money that I've gotten through this. This I actually wasn't trying to raise any money through this I didn't realize that people could even donate to this change.org. So I'm trying to figure out a way to donate that. That's not, I'm not doing this for money. Uh, um, and nor am I doing this for litigation, but I want nothing to do with courts or, or any of that. This is just, uh, was really to show that we've, we've had enough and that we can all work together and, and have a, a, a unified voice. And one final thing is you kept on saying it's polarizing on Twitter. It is very polarizing on Twitter, but it's not polarized on this specific issue. Yeah, I'll have to say, I mean, this is probably the one thing that every single doctor agrees on. Rich, maybe I'll give you the final uh, final comment. I think we as a profession um, owe it to our patients to set standards for ourselves. And, and I think that's a critical part of who we are as a profession. And we've created institutions to do that. They're not perfect institutions. I think we need to work on making them better. Um, and one of the things on our website, you can look on the bottom and it's engage with us. Uh, we have a, a physician insights network where people can tell us what they want to tell us about what they think about the program and people can get engaged and help us make it better. But I think the issue of the profession maintaining control over its own standards and not looking to state legislatures to do that, I, I think that is a critical thing. And I hope we don't give that up. But we haven't been able to, I mean, look, I mean, in all fairness, again, um, it doesn't seem that the physicians have much control in the matter. I mean, the, phys the practicing physicians, Rich, I mean, reality is, let's just call a spade a spade. They have no control because, like you said, hospitals and healthcare systems have mandated this and payers have mandated this. The reason they've done that is because they are looking to us to identify physicians they can trust. And when I say us, I mean the physician community. And people may have issues about the process, but the idea that they get recognized for the expertise that they have and that hospitals and health systems and practice groups can rely on something that is created by physicians, that's pretty important and pretty powerful. And if you think about what the alternative is, uh, it's state legislatures deciding what makes a good doctor. It, it's a whole variety of other organizations deciding. I think doctors need to decide. And I think we need to use the institutions that we have to do that. And I think that individual... But, but the doctors have told you. They've decided. They've told you. Some doctors have told us. And other doctors think actually it's pretty important for the profession 
to maintain control over its own standards. So and I would like have to have a collective mean, interest in that. Yeah. I, I want to conclude. Uh, did I miss anything? Any question I should have asked, Aaron, I did not ask. Any question I should have asked, Rich, I did not ask. No, I, I do want to say I do actually, like, it got a little heated, but like, we're all colleagues. And, and I do, I want to restate, I think we all want the same thing, hopefully what's what's best for our patients. And uh, I appreciate you coming on uh, and, and, and talking with us. Uh, um, like, it's nice. And um, as an individual physician who sometimes feels powerless, it's nice to like, you know, you're the CEO of this big major thing that has a lot of control and it's uh, uh, rewarding, at least for me. And I hopefully shot in now, at least uh, the constant, you know, people who are going to listen to this, that we got to talk with you. And I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And as I say, the way the organization gets better is by hearing the authentic voices of physicians. And that's gonna get a lot better. Just get rid of mock. I'm telling you, I'm not, I like tests. Well, I do the first one. I'll even, yeah, you know, just get rid of the mock. It's all over. Look, uh, well, you know. look, uh, I hope that I can bring you both back in about six months or eight months to the, to the podcast and talk a little bit more. I think my, my goal of this is hopefully that there's the feedback is clear. Uh, I've actually tried to solicit people who would come defending the 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 mark and the lka and uh, the I, I wasn't able to find somebody who is independent and not not necessarily uh, anyway um and we appreciate you taking down the ad um uh that was about taking the lka in on vacation i believe the intent was to demonstrate flexibility but obviously everybody realized it was let's face it tasteless okay. um i mean if it wasn't you wouldn't take it down and delete it um, Rich Barron, CEO of ABIM, thank you for coming healthcare, healthcare Unfiltered, and Aaron Goodman, uh, hematologist provocateur, uh, thank you for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. I hope I did justice for to both of you, and more important to listeners, that they heard both views, and uh, I look forward to having you back. Thanks, Shadi. Appreciate it. Thanks, Shadi. Take care. Have a good evening. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I appreciate you tuning in and supporting this podcast. Special thanks to Dr. Richard Barron for being on the podcast and for managing to uh, handle a lot of questions and for agreeing to be on and discussing a topic that is of interest to a lot of folks who are certified by internal medicine and any of their specialties. I hope that we continue the dialogue and I hope that we can actually come back in six to eight months and try to understand what can be done to make sure that all of the constituents are uh, concerns are actually being addressed. So, and thank you to Dr. Goodman for being on the show as well and for really leading and spearheading this petition that many of you signed, many of you have signed. So thank you to both of my guests. And thank you all for tuning in and for listening. And I hope you can let me know what you think of this podcast episode as well as of other episodes. All of them, I am here to listen and to refine the podcast to make sure it is addressing all of your suggestions, concerns, and comments. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Please share, share the podcast with your friends, with your colleagues. I think this will let more searchable, more available, as well as easily uh, folks can find it on YouTube, as well as on all podcast outlets. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Ronald Reagan. Peace is not absence of conflict. 
It is the ability to handle conflict by peaceful means. Until next time, take care.